Hello, and welcome to episode 13 of Tea and Old Books. My name is Jenny, and every day through the Spanish lockdown, I am reading aloud an old book, and I'm reading two chapters at a time. Today is day 14 of the Spanish lockdown, so we've now all been in our homes for two weeks. Wow, it's quite a long time. I'd quite like to go to the sea now, but I guess I won't be for a while because Spain has announced that it will be under lockdown for another three weeks on top of the previous two weeks. So that's good news for listeners to this podcast because we will definitely finish the circular staircase by the end of the lockdown. Today, we're reading chapters 25 and 26, and the tea that I'm drinking is a green tea with mint. I'm still not quite at the end of my stash, so there are many teas to go. Now, what happened last episode? So, in chapters 23 and 24, quite a lot happened. Well, in chapter 23, a lot happened. So, the stables burned down. And somebody tried to break into the house again. And Rachel, our protagonist, shot somebody. So she has got hold of a gun now. And she shot somebody in the leg as they tried to break in. So that was chapters, chapter 23. And then chapter 24 was basically just Rachel and her niece Gertrude driving around the town trying to find a man who was limping which they didn't find anyone, but there were a couple of stories of of people who had seen men who were limping that they latched onto. So chapter 24 was very boringly titled Flinders. Flinders turned out to be the name of the horse they borrowed, which, you know, considering some of the other chapters, was not as fun as I had hoped it would be. So let's carry on reading. So we're reading chapter 25... A visit from Louise. That day was destined to be an eventful one, for when I entered the house and found Eliza ensconced in the upper hall on a chair, with Mary Ann doing her best to stifle her with household ammonia, and Liddy rubbing her wrists, whatever good that is supposed to do, I knew that the ghost had been walking again, and this time in daylight. Eliza was in a frenzy of fear. She clutched at my sleeve when I went close to her and refused to let go until she had told her story. Coming just after the fire, the household was demoralised and it was no surprise to me to find Alex and the undergardener struggling downstairs with a heavy trunk between them. I didn't want to do it, Miss Innes, Alex said, but she was so excited I was afraid she would do as she said, drag it down herself and scratch the staircase. I was trying to get my bonnet off and to keep the maids quiet at the same time. Now, Eliza, when you have washed your face and stopped bawling, I said, come into my sitting room and tell me what has happened. Liddy put away my things without speaking. The very set of her shoulders expressed disapproval. Well, I said, when the silence became uncomfortable, things seemed to be warming up. Silence from Liddy and a long sigh. If Eliza goes... I don't know where to look for another cook. More silence. Rosie is probably a good cook. Sniff. Liddy, I said at last, 
don't dare to deny that you are having the time of your life. You positively gloat in this excitement. You never looked better. It's my opinion all this running around and getting jolted out of a rut has stirred up that torpid liver of yours. It's not myself I'm thinking about, she said, goaded into speech. Maybe my liver was torpid, and maybe it wasn't. But I know this. I've got some feelings left, and to see you standing at the foot of that staircase, shooting through the door, I'll never be the same woman again. Well, I'm glad of that. Anything for a change, I said. And in came Eliza, flanked by Rosie and Mary Ann. Her story, broken with sobs and corrections from the other two, was this. At two o'clock, 2.15, Rosie insisted, she had gone upstairs to get a picture from her room to show Mary Ann. A picture of a lady, Mary Ann interposed. She went up the servant's staircase and along the corridor to her room, which lay between the trunk room and the half-unfinished ballroom. She heard a sound as she went down the corridor, like someone moving furniture, but she was not nervous. She thought it might be men examining the house after the fire the night before, but she looked in the trunk room and saw nobody. She went into her room quietly. The noise had ceased and everything was quiet. Then she sat down on the side of her bed and feeling faint, she was subject to spells. I told you that when I came, didn't I, Rosie? Yes, ma'am. Indeed she did. She put her head down on her pillow and... Took a nap. All right, I said. Go on. When I came to Miss Innes, sure as I'm sitting here, I thought I'd die. Something hit me on the face and I set up sudden. And then I see the plaster drop, dropping from a little hole in the wall. And the first thing I knew, an iron bar that long, fully two yards by her measure, shot through that hole and tumbled on the bed. If I'd been still sleeping, fainting, corrected Rosie, I'd have been hit on the head and killed. I wished you'd heard her scream, put in Mary Ann, and her face as white as a pillow slip when she tumbled down the stairs. No doubt there is some natural explanation for it, Eliza, I said. You may have dreamed it, in your fainting attack. But if it is true, the metal rod and the hole in the wall will show it. Eliza looked a bit sheepish. The hole's there all right, Miss Innes, she said, but the bar was gone when Mary Ann and Rosie went up to pack my truck. That wasn't all. Liddy's voice came from the corner. Eliza said that from the hole in the wall, a burning eye looked down at her. The wall must be at least six inches thick, I said with asperity. Unless the person who drilled the hole carried his eyes on the ends of a stick, Eliza couldn't possibly have seen them. But the fact remained, and a visit to Eliza's room proved it. I might jeer all I wish, someone had drilled a hole in the unfinished wall of the ballroom, passing between the bricks of the partition and shooting through the unresisting plaster of Eliza's room with such force as to send the rod flying onto her bed. I had gone upstairs alone, and I confess the thing puzzled me. In two or three places in the wall, small apertures had been made, none of them of any depth. Not the least mysterious thing was the disappearance of the iron implements that had been used. I remembered a story I read once about an impish dwarf that lived in the spaces between the double walls of an ancient castle. I wondered vaguely if my original idea of a secret entrance to a hidden chamber could be right, after all and if we were housing some erratic guest who played pranks on us in the dark and destroyed the walls that he might listen, hidden safely away to our amazed investigations. 
Mary Ann and Eliza left that afternoon, but Rosie decided to stay. It was about five o'clock when the hack came from the station to get them, and to my amazement, it had an occupant. Matthew Geist, the driver, asked for me and explained his errand with pride. I've brought you a cook, Miss Innes, he said. When the message came to come up for two girls and their trunks, I supposed there was something doing, and as this here woman has been looking for work in the village, I thought I'd bring her along. Already I had acquired the true suburbanite ability to take servants on faith. I no longer demanded written and impeachable references. I, Rachel Innes, have learned not to mind if the cook sits down comfortably in my sitting room when she has taken the orders for the day, and I am grateful if the silver is not cleaned with scoring soap. And so that day I merely told Liddy to send the new applicant in. When she came, however, I could hardly restrain a gasp of surprise. It was the woman with the pitted face. She stood somewhat awkwardly just inside the door, and she had an air of self-confidence that was inspiring. Yes, she could cook, was not a fancy cook, but could make good soups and desserts if there was anyone to take charge of the salads. So in the end I took her. As Halsey said when we told him, it didn't matter much about the cook's face if it was clean. I have spoken of Halsey's restlessness. On that day, it seemed to be more than ever a resistless impulse that kept him out until after luncheon. I think he hoped constantly that he might meet Louise driving over the hills in her runabout. Possibly he did meet her occasionally, but from his continued gloom, I felt sure the situation between them was unchanged. Part of the afternoon, I believe he read, Gertrude and I were out, as I have said, and at dinner we both noticed that something had occurred to distract him. He was disagreeable, which is unlike him, nervous, looking at his watch every few minutes, and he ate almost nothing. He asked twice during the meal on what train Mr. Jameson and the other detective were coming, and had long periods of abstraction, during which he dug his fork into my damask cloth and did not hear when he was spoken to. He refused dessert and left the table early, excusing himself on the ground that he wanted to see Alex. Alex, however, was not to be found. It was after eight when Halsey ordered the car and started down the hill at a pace that, even for him, was unusually reckless. Shortly after, Alex reported that he was ready to go over the house preparatory to closing it for the night. Sam Bahannon came at a quarter before nine and began his patrol of the grounds, and with the arrival of the two detectives to look forward to, I was not especially apprehensive. At half past nine, I heard the sound of a horse driven furiously up the drive. It came to a stop in front of the house, and immediately after, there were hurried steps on the veranda. Our nerves were not what they should have been, and Gertrude, always apprehensive lately, was at the door almost instantly. A moment later, Louise had burst into the room and stood there, bareheaded and breathing hard. Where is Halsey? she demanded. Above her plain black gown, her eyes looked big and sombre, and the rapid drive had brought no colour to her face. I got up and drew forward a chair. He has not come back, I said, quietly. Sit down, child. You are not strong enough for this kind of thing. I don't think she even heard me. He has not come back, she asked, looking from me to Gertrude. Do you know where he went? Where I can find him? 
For heaven's sake, Louise, Gertrude burst out. Tell us what is wrong. Halsey is not here. He has gone to the station for Mr. Jameson. What has happened? To the station, Gertrude. You are sure? Yes, I said. Listen, there is the whistle of the train now. She relaxed a little at our matter-of-fact tone and allowed herself to sink into a chair. Perhaps I was wrong, she said heavily. He, he will be here in a few moments, if, if everything is right. We sat there, the three of us, without attempt at conversation. Both Gertrude and I recognised the futility of asking Louise any questions. Her reticence was a part of the role she had assumed. Our ears were strained for the first throb of the motor as it turned into the drive and commenced the climb to the house. Ten minutes passed. Fifteen. Twenty. I saw Louise's hands grow rigid as they clutched the arms of her chair. I watched Gertrude's bright colour slowly ebbing away and around my own heart I seemed to feel the grasp of a giant's hand. Twenty-five minutes and then a sound. But it was not the chug of a motor. It was the unmistakable rumble of the Casanova hack. Gertrude drew aside the curtain and peered into the darkness. It's the hack, I am sure, she said, evidently relieved. Something has to have gone wrong with the car, and no wonder the way Halsey went down the hill. It seemed a long time before the creaking vehicle came to a stop at the door. Louise rose and stood watching, her hand to her throat. And then Gertrude opened the door, admitting Mr. Jameson and a stocky, middle-aged man. Halsey was not with them. When the door had closed and Louise realised that Halsey had not come, her expression changed. From tense watchfulness to relief and now again to absolute despair, her face was an open page. Halsey, I asked unceremoniously, ignoring the stranger. Did he not meet you? No, Mr. Jameson looked slightly surprised. I rather expected the car, but we got up all right. You didn't see him at all, Louise demanded breathlessly. Mr. Jameson knew her at once, although he had not seen her before. She had kept to her rooms until the morning she left. No, Miss Armstrong, he said. I saw nothing of him. What is wrong? Then we have to find him, she asserted. Every instant is precious. Mr. Jameson, I have reason for believing that he is in danger, but I don't know what it is. Only he must be found. The stocky man had said nothing. Now, however, he went quickly toward the door. I'll catch the hack down the road and hold it, he said. Is the gentleman down in the town? Mr. Jameson, Louise said impulsively, I can use the hack, take my horse and trap outside and drive like mad. Try to find the dragonfly. It ought to be easy to trace. I can think of no other way, only don't lose a moment. The new detective had gone, and a moment later Jameson went rapidly down the drive, the cob's feet striking fire at every step. Louise stood looking after them. When she turned around, she faced Gertrude, who stood indignant, almost tragic, in the hall. You know what threatens Halsey, Louise, she said accusingly. I believe you know this whole horrible thing, this mystery that we are struggling with. If anything happens to Halsey, I shall never forgive you. Louise only raised her hands despairingly and dropped them again. He is as dear to me as he is to you, she said sadly. I tried to warn him. Nonsense, I said, as briskly as I could. We are making a lot of trouble out of something perhaps very small. Halsey was probably late. He is always late. Any moment we may hear the car coming up the road. But it did not come.
After a half hour of suspense, Louise went out quietly and did not come back. I hardly knew she was gone until I heard the station hack moving off. At 11 o'clock, the telephone rang. It was Mr. Jameson. I have found the dragonfly, Miss Innes, he said. It has collided with a freight car on the siding above the station. No, Mr. Innes was not there, but we shall probably find him. Send Warner for the car. But they did not find him. At four o'clock the next morning, we were still waiting for news, while Alex watched the house and Sam the grounds. At daylight, I dropped into exhausted sleep. Halsey had not come back, and there was no word from the detective. Ooh. I feel like I end every chapter by ooing. But, you know, every chapter more or less ends on a cliffhanger. So, that's the end of the chapter, and Halsey has disappeared. And he's, so he's, he went off in the car, he's had some kind of accident, and he's vanished. So, what does Louise know, is the question. So, I'm going to think that there's... Mm, some kind of bad blood between Dr. Walker and Halsey because they're love rivals. And um, Halsey's gone off to do so. I don't even know what it could be. There's just too many balls in the air right now. Let's continue with chapter 26 and see if we learn more about what's happened to Halsey. Yes. So, chapter 26. Halsey's disappearance. Nothing that had gone before had been as bad as this. Well, I mean, Rachel, honestly, I'm just pausing. Somebody's been murdered and your, your butler has died. Like, I feel like both of those things are worse than your nephew going missing. He's only missing at the moment. Calm down, Rachel. So, the murder and Thomas's sudden death we had been able to view in a detached sort of way. But with Halsey's disappearance, everything was altered. Our little circle, intact until now, was broken. We were no longer onlookers who saw a battle passing around them. We were the centre of action. Of course, there was no time then to voice such an idea. My mind seemed able to hold only one thought, that Halsey had been foully dealt with and that every minute lost might be fatal. Mr. Jameson came back about eight o'clock the next morning. He was covered with mud and his hat was gone. Altogether, we were a sad-looking trio that gathered around a breakfast that no one could eat. Over a cup of black coffee, the detective told us what he had learned of Halsey's movements the night before. Up to a certain point, the car had made it easy enough to follow, and I gathered that Mr Burns, the other detective, had followed a similar car for miles at dawn, only to find it was a touring car on an endurance run. He left here about ten minutes after eight, Mr. Jameson said. He went alone, and at eight-twenty, he stopped at Dr. Walker's. Ooh. I went to the doctor's about midnight, but he had been called out on a case and had not come back at four o'clock. From the doctor's, it seems Mr. Innes walked across the lawn to the cottage Mrs. Armstrong and her daughter have taken. Mrs. Armstrong had retired, and he said perhaps a dozen words to Miss Louise. She will not say what they were, but the girl evidently suspects what has occurred. That is, she suspects foul play, but she doesn't know of what nature. Then, apparently, he started directly for the station. He was going very fast. The flagman at the Carroll Street crossing says he saw the car pass. He knew the siren. 
Along somewhere in the dark stretch between Carroll Street and the depot, he evidently swerved suddenly, perhaps someone in the road, and went full into the side of a freight. We found it there last night. He might have been thrown under the train by the force of the shock, I said tremulously. Gertrude shuddered. We examined every inch of track. There was no sign. But surely he can't be gone, I cried. Aren't there traces in the mud? Anything? There is no mud, only dust. There has been no rain. And the footpath there is of cinders. Miss Innes, I am inclined to think that he has met with bad treatment, in the light of what has gone before. I do not think he has been murdered. I shrank from the word. Burns is back in the country on a clue we got from the night clerk at the drugstore. There will be two more men here by noon, and the city office is on the lookout. The creek, Gertrude asked. The creek is shallow now. If it were swollen with rain, it would be different. There is hardly any water in it. Now, Miss Innes, he said, turning to me, I must ask you some questions. Had Mr. Halsey any possible reason for going away like this, without warning? None whatever. He went away once before, he persisted, and you were as sure then. He did not leave the dragonfly jammed into the side of a freight car before. No, but he left it for repairs in a blacksmith shop, a long distance from here. Do you know if he had any enemies? Anyone who might wish him out the way? Not that I know of, unless... No, I cannot think of any. Was he in the habit of carrying money? He never carried it far. No, he never had more than enough for current expenses. Mr. Jameson got up then and began to pace the room. It was an unwanted concession to the occasion. Then I think we get at it by elimination. The chances are against flight. If he was hurt, we find no trace of him. It looks almost like an abduction. This young Dr. Walker, have you any idea why Mr. Innes should have gone there last night? I cannot understand it, Gertrude said thoughtfully. I don't think he knew Dr. Walker at all. And their relations could hardly have been cordial under the circumstances. Jameson picked up his ears, and little by little he drew from us the unfortunate story of Halsey's love affair, and the fact that Louise was going to marry Dr. Walker. Mr. Jameson listened attentively. There are some interesting developments here, he said, thoughtfully. The woman who claims to be the mother of Lucian Wallace has not come back. Your nephew has apparently been spirited away. There is an organised attempt being made to enter this house. In fact, it has been entered. Witness the incident with the cook yesterday, and I have a new piece of information. He looked carefully away from Gertrude. Mr. John Bailey is not at his Knickerbocker apartments, and I don't know where he is. It's a hash, that's what it is. It's a Chinese puzzle. They won't fit together, unless, unless Mr. Bailey and your nephew have again... And at once, Gertrude surprised me. They are not together, she said hotly. I, I know where Mr. Bailey is, and my brother is not with him. The detective turned and looked at her keenly. Miss Gertrude, he said, if you and Miss Louise would only tell me everything you know and surmise about this business, I should be able to do a great many things. I believe I could find your brother 
and I might be able to, well, to do some other things. But Gertrude's glance did not falter. Nothing that I know could help you to find Halsey, she said stubbornly. I know absolutely nothing of his, I know absolutely as little of his disappearance as you do. And I can only say this, I do not trust Dr. Walker. I think he hated Halsey and he would get rid of him if he could. Perhaps you were right. In fact, I had some such theory myself, but Dr. Walker went out late last night to a serious case in Summitville and is still there. Burns traced him there. We have made guarded inquiry at the Greenwood Club and through the village. There is absolutely nothing to go on but this. On the embankment above the railroad, at the point where we found the machine, is a small house. An old woman and a daughter, who is very lame, live there. They say that they distinctly heard the shock when the dragonfly hit the car, and they went to the bottom of their garden and looked over. The automobile was there, they could see the lights, and they thought someone had been injured. It was very dark, but they could make out two figures standing together. The women were curious, and leaving the fence, they went back and by a roundabout path down to the road. When they got there, the car was still standing, the headlight broken, and the bonnet crushed, but there was no one to be seen. The detective went away immediately, and to Gertrude and me was left the woman's part to watch and to wait. By luncheon, nothing had been found, and I was frantic. I went upstairs to Halsey's room, finally, from sheer inability to sit across from Gertrude any longer and meet her terror-filled eyes. Liddy was in my dressing room, suspiciously red-eyed, and trying to put a right sleeve in a left armhole of a new waist for me. I was much too shaken to scold. What name did that woman in the kitchen give, she demanded, viciously ripping out the offending leave. sleeve. Bliss, Matty Bliss, I replied. Bliss, M.B. Well, that's not what she has on her suitcase. It is marked N.F.C. The new cook and her initials troubled me not at all. I put on my bonnet and sent for what the Casanova livery men called a stylish turnaround. Having once made up my mind to a course of action, I am not one to turn back. Warner drove me, he was plainly disgusted, and he steered the livery horse as he would the dragonfly, feeling uneasily with his left foot for the clutch and working his right elbow at an imaginary horn every time a dog got in the way. Warner had something on his mind, and after we had turned into the road, he voiced it. Miss Innes, he said, I overheard a part of a conversation yesterday that I didn't understand. It wasn't my business to understand it, for that matter, but I've been thinking all day that I better tell you. Yesterday afternoon, while you and Miss Gertrude were out driving, I had got the car in some sort of shape again after the fire, and I went to the library to call Mr Innes to see it. I went into the living room where Miss Liddy said he was, and halfway across the library I heard him talking to someone. He seemed to be walking up and down, and he was in a rage, I can tell you. What did he say? The first thing I heard was, Excuse me, Miss Innes, but it's what he said. The damned rascal, he said. I'll see him in, well, in hell is what he said. In hell first. Then somebody else spoke up. It was a woman. She said, I warned them, but they thought I would be afraid. A woman? Did you wait to see who it was? 
I wasn't spying Miss Innes, Warner said with dignity, but the next thing caught my attention. She said, I knew there was something wrong from the start. A man isn't well one day and dead the next without some reason. I thought she was speaking of Thomas. And you don't know who it was, I exclaimed. Warner, you had the key to this whole occurrence in your hands and did not use it. However, there was nothing to be done. I resolved to make inquiry when I got home, and in the meantime, my present errand absorbed me. This was nothing less than to see Louise Armstrong, and to attempt to drag from her what she knew, or suspected, of Halsey's disappearance. But here, as in every direction I turned, I was baffled. A neat maid answered the door, but she stood squarely in the doorway, and it was impossible to preserve one's dignity and pass her. Miss Armstrong is very ill and unable to see anyone, she said. I did not believe her. And Mrs. Armstrong, is she also ill? She is with Miss Louise and cannot be disturbed. Tell her it is Miss Innes and that it is a matter of the greatest importance. It would be of no use, Miss Innes, my orders are positive. At that moment, a heavy step sounded on the stairs. Past the maid's white straps shoulder, I could see a familiar thatch of grey hair and in a moment I was face to face with Dr. Stewart. He was very grave, and in his customary genility was tinged with restraint. You are the very woman I want to see, he said promptly. Send away your trap and let me drive you home. What is this about your nephew? He has disappeared, Doctor. Not only that, but there is every evidence he has been either abducted or... I could not finish. The doctor helped me into his capacious buggy in silence. Until we had got a little distance, he did not speak, and then he turned and looked at me. Now tell me about it, he said. He heard me through without speaking. And you think Louise knows something, he said, when I had finished. I don't. In fact, I am sure of it. The best evidence is this. She asked me if he had been heard from, or if anything had been learned. She won't allow Walker in the room, and she made me promise to see you and tell you this. Don't give up the search for him. Find him, and find him soon. He is living. Well, I said, if she knows that, she knows more. She is a very cruel and ungrateful girl. She is a very sick girl, he said gravely. Neither you nor I can judge her until we know everything. Both she and her mother are ghosts of their former selves. Under all this, these two sudden deaths, this bank robbery, the invasions at Sunnyside, and Halsey's disappearance, there is some mystery that, mark my words, will come out some day. And when it does, we shall find Louise Armstrong a victim. I had not noticed where we were going, but now I saw we were beside the railroad, and from a knot of men standing beside the track, I divined that it was here the car had been found. The siding, however, was empty. Except for a few bits of splintered wood on the ground, there was no sign of the accident. Where is the freight car that was rammed? the doctor asked a bystander. It was taken away at daylight when the train was moved. There was nothing to be gained. He pointed at the house. (coughs) (coughs) Sorry, excuse me. He pointed at the house on the embankment where the old lady and her daughter had heard the crash and seen two figures beside the car. Then we drove slowly home. I had the doctor put me down at the gate, and I walked to the house, past the lodge where we had found Louise, 
and later Port Thomas. Up the drive where I had seen a man watching the lodge and where later Rosie had been frightened. Past the east entrance where so short a time before the most obstinate effort had been made to enter the house and where that night two weeks ago Lydia and I had seen the strange woman. Not far from the west wing lay the blackened ruins of the stables. I felt like a ruin myself as I paused in the broad veranda before I entered the house. Two private detectives had arrived in my absence and it was a relief to turn over to them the responsibility of the house and grounds. Mr Jameson, they said, had arranged for more to assist in the search for the missing man and at that time the country was being scored in all directions. The household staff was again depleted that afternoon. Liddy was waiting to tell me that the new cook had gone, bag and baggage, without waiting to be paid. No one had admitted the visitor whom Warner had heard in the library, unless possibly the missing cook. Again, I was working in a circle. Ah, oh, it's the end of the chapter, just in time because I'm running out of breath and I need to cough. I'm going to drink some tea. So Halsey is missing, and he was seen to have a mysterious conversation with a woman. Now I think clearly the woman he was talking to like, must have been the cook, and I think that the cook, who's the woman with the smallpox scars on her face, I think she's going to be the Nina Carrington, who was mentioned chapters and chapters ago. Do you remember when Louise was sick? in bed, someone sends a telegram saying to watch out for Nina Harrington. And so I think that this mysterious Nina Harrington has made her way onto the scene, pretending to be a cook, cooks them like one meal, has this conversation with Halsey and then legs it. I think clearly that's going to be the case. And my guess as well is that Nina Harrington is going to be the mother of the child, the boy who was found a few episodes again. So yeah, let's stop reading there because I need to go and cough and breathe. And I will read two more chapters tomorrow. I wish you all the best and a good night.